Welcome again to the Feral House podcast. Our guest today is Mary Ann Cherry. She is a Los Angeles-based freelance writer and the author of the upcoming book, Morris Kite, and it is a biography of Morris Kite. Welcome, Mary Ann. Tell us the full title of your upcoming book. Yeah, hi, Christina. It's um, Morris Kite, um, uh, humanist, liberationist, fantabulist, a story of gay rights and gay wrongs. And many of us um, are tempted, I don't know what it is, it must be a brain tweak, but we're, people are tempted to pronounce it Morris Knight, but there is no N and it's a hard K. So it's kite, like right with a K is how he would say it. Wow. And so Morris Kite was someone I had no idea about until I saw your email um, telling me about him and proposing um, the book that you've written, which is a biography of Kite. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about who Morris Kite was? Oh, sure. I, um, the, I think the main reason I wanted to write this book is he should not be forgotten. He is not one of those um, people that should be left into the as a footnote because he really was key to the post-Stonewall gay liberation movement. But even pre-Stonewall, he had an underground, um, it's like a social services um, that, that he provided underground here in Los Angeles. He would put his phone number on walls and bars and at the jail, and it just basically said, if you need help, call me. And main, and per, he was the main purpose was to provide, he had doctors who would treat people for STDs in the back room of his house. Because in those days, if anybody who, who was diagnosed with an STD had to be reported to the Board of Health, which would then go to their family and friends and employer. Often it was published in the newspaper, so-and-so has a case of syphilis. And so it would would be a life-ruining experience. Hence, people did not get treated for STDs. So Morris was able to finagle a few doctors who would come on Sunday afternoons and treat people in his back room. Now, they were risking everything themselves by doing this. And while that was all going on, Morris had a yard sale going on in the front. And this was long before yard sales were a thing. And it was kind of a, it was very underground. All his work was underground in the, uh, through the 50s and the 60s. And then after Stonewall, he realized, we got to take this to the next level. And, it, and fortunately, there were enough other activists at that time where they were able to start the Gay Liberation Front which then easily led to the Gay Community Services Center. Wow. So it sounds like Morris was one of, I think sometimes the term is called like the gay elders in the community of Los Angeles. Had he been, is he an L.A. guy? No, he, he's, uh, he's actually, a te- he grew up in Texas. He's true blue Texas guy, kid. And then after his uh, military service, he lived in New Mexico, Albuquerque specifically. And he was a, really like a mover and shaker in Albuquerque, helped to shape that, that small city, large town. Uh, very involved in the arts community. He had the, a playhouse. Um, and he was, in a, in a way, he was being shaped for a shot at the governorship of New Mexico. And inevitably, there was a scandal wasn't necessarily his scandal, but there was a scandal and he was caught up in it and he left town. 
he had to leave town. So his life went from like being at a 10 plus down to a zero overnight. And so he moved to my uh, to Los Angeles and going from such a high position in the work and the arts in Albuquerque, what did he do uh, to sustain his lifestyle in Los Angeles? Well, that's a good question. Um, he, When he was in um, Albuquerque, he did befriend a lot of the Native Americans in New Mexico, and they taught him some arcane recipe about how to make phony turquoise jewelry, which he did. He And so there's a lot of phony turquoise jewelry out there, and it has Morris Kite's fingerprints on it. And he knew how to he knew how to hustle in that way. His his highfalutin lifestyle was over. He walked away from it, and he was fine. He lived very close to the edge. He sold antiques. Uh, it didn't take him long to get um, high-end clients like um, uh, Liberace came to him. Even um, Herbert, uh, um, uh, Edgar Hoover's uh, lover would come out to Los Angeles and shop at the same shops that Morris was uh, providing. So he, he also sold... Um, trinkets at Dodger Stadium for a while. He hustled. He did whatever he needed to do to keep above ground. And then he got involved in the anti-war movement. And that's really where he got his chops in at in activism and organizing. And so with Morris, um, did his gay activism and peace activism develop at the same time? Or was he already active in the kind of underground gay rights scene? He was already active in the underwrite, in the underground scene. Now, now let's keep in mind that Mattachine, um, which was Harry Hayes' organization, and they were they were seminal in actually just bringing gay people together um, to talk about things, to talk about their issues. Morris was not involved. He was post um, Mattachine, and Mattachine had all but dispersed by that point. There was a um, there was a, uh, Harry was no longer with it. So Morris was a, was a lone ranger in his efforts early on. He did it his way. He didn't see the, the in the 50s, he didn't see the use of sitting around talking about gay marriage when they weren't even allowed to walk down the street holding hands yet. So he was a strategist, without a doubt. His work in the peace movement and the civil rights movement and for farm workers, it did eventually, he... he he uh, garnered a lot of goodwill there, and it did eventually flow into gay rights. Not immediately. Uh, the peace movement people were not always open arms and embracing of the gay movement, but it, over time it did happen. So what's interesting, um, and we really want uh, folks to find and, and read Marianne's book, um, there's so much um, history and fascinating details on Morris's life and as well as the peace and gay rights movements um, overall. But I'm curious, Marianne, how did you get connected to Morris? Well, I met Morris probably in the last 10 years of his life. He, um, in the mid-70s, he got a house in Hollywood. It was the McCadden Place house. And it became famous. It really, I mean, just about any mover and shaker in state and local politics would go there and they could co-mingle with gay activists and also some of the homeless youth that Morris would take in to allow sleep in the back. Um, he had a, like a back cottage there. 
And during that time, I had heard of Morris. I had heard of this guy in Hollywood who helped uh, a lot of gay people underground. And I met him through, um, I had a little job, and I met him through the person I was working for. And I started doing, I started helping Morris out, just typing some of his missives. And we became, we, we were friends for the rest of his life. He was a wonderful man. I think that what is interesting, when I read uh, the first kind of few chapters of your book, is how influential Morris was in not just the gay rights, but also in the larger uh, Los Angeles and then, of course, California political scene. Can you talk a little bit, um, based on even your, your time with Morris, of what do you think was his great skill or what was his magic that could bring all those folks together? Well, I think it, it, it was a combination of skill and magic. He had a personality that for some people would find the grating. But for me, I found that his uh, most irritating qualities were, were the strongest assets for a community. Morris just absolutely refused to buy into the shame that was expected of homosexuals. And so he could walk into a room very proud with his head up, put his hand out, Say, I'm Morris Kite, I'm representing the homosexual community. That stunned people in that time that, you know, um, that anyone would dare have that. So as he, he got, an, he got a, an appointment onto the uh, Human Rights Commission of the Los Angeles County Human Rights Commission, which in effect gave gay people a seat at the table of social reform. He was there to voice their concerns and their needs, which was so essential just a few years later when AIDS hit. There needed to be somebody already on the front lines and able to say, people are literally dying on the streets and we need help and to come up with solutions. Morris was not one to just show up and identify a problem. He would show up, identify the problem and offer solutions, which really is a big difference than what we see going on today in some circles. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, yeah. If you if you're not coming with a solution, then you know you're not really doing much at all, is my opinion. No, right, right. So I'm curious to uh, we I, we love the title of the book, and that's why I wanted you to say it. Uh, one of the words in the subtitle is fantabulist. Why fantabulist? Well, that was how a gentleman, um, Mark Thompson, described Morris, and I couldn't shake that word. It was it was such a good word, and Mark uh, was an editor. Uh, for the advocate for many years. He also wrote for them. And he he said it's a combination of fantastic and sort of someone who was a bit of a a bullist. <laughs> like he would, I, I don't want to use the exact word, but so it was a combination. Morris was fantastic, but he was also, he would, he, he would take it over the top. He would take it just over the top enough where you had to notice it. And that's where that word comes from. I, I think it perfectly describes him. I think that um, when I think about what I know now f about Morris Kite based on your work, I kept thinking about how Morris would fit into some of the modern gay culture, which is 
culturally moving forward where I don't think that 20 years ago, either one of us or even Morris could imagine, you know, RuPaul having um, a TV show based on drag. Uh, where do you think that Morris would fit into the gay culture today? Well, I, that's, that's a tricky question because even, you know, near the end of his life, he wasn't fitting into the gay culture simply because um, as, as was, as should happen, the gay community has evolved and we are now probably in the second or third generation of gay people who have never been in the closet and they don't really understand the closet and many don't respect the closet or why people were ever in the closet. So there was a huge generational gap, but it's also the, um, the many advantages that they, that the young people, uh, that anybody younger than Morris have benefited from, they're they're kind of dis, they're disassociated from their own history. How Morris would fit in today? Well, first of all, social media was made for Morris Kite, and it's unfortunate that he wasn't able to participate in that. Morris, at the at the end of the day, was always an activist. He was the one that would show up and and just with fire in his belly and ready to go. So I think today's um, climate would very much benefit from his activism and his strategizing. I don't know whether they would listen, but he definitely would be ahead of the game in terms of how to play play certain things. Yeah, I, I was so impressed by, um, in reading the book, is his skill in that strategy type meeting with other folks, people who were essentially 180 degrees philosophically uh, from Morris, he could bring and find the co one common thing to bring these groups together. And I think that is one of the uh, missing elements in kind of coalition building and activism today. Is this book something that in, in a perfect, your ideal reader, um, do you think that younger folks should be reading about the uh, early history of the gay rights movement? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, what young, I wish that young gay people would get from this is the intersectionality of where we are at um, as a society. And I say that because um, it's gay rights on top of workers' rights, on top of wo uh, women's rights, it all comes together. It all, it all, it's all going to blend in. You can't necessarily say, I'm just for gay rights. When you're for someone else's rights, you're for everyone's rights. And I think, um, you know, the, the thing about the Morris-type activism, he reached his hand out to everyone. It's true. And there's a, a photograph in the book of Morris reaching across the table and shaking hands with the new mayor of Los Angeles, uh, Mayor Tom Bradley, First time anything like that had ever happened. And uh, Mayor Bradley, to his credit, reached across the table and grabbed his hand. And it's a great photograph. It's just, it tells us that like, this is, this is the future. And that paved the way, it absolutely paved the way. And then Morris could then be a regular phone call on, on Tom Bradley's uh, phone list. You know, Morris Kite is calling about this because there was still a lot of gay bashing 
in those days. And there was also a lot of entrapment. And the then uh, chief of police here was just brutal. The um, entrapments and the raids of gay bars, that didn't end after the Stonewall Inn rebellion. It, it, it actually, the, the, op, the opposition to gay rights was just as strong as the uh, pro-gay rights. So you needed someone like Morris Kite to avoid having a civil war, so to speak. Yeah, and I think um, too much time has passed for, as you said, a couple generations that people do forget that what we think of during the 70s and 80s of being more of an open time, it was moving towards more openness, but there was also um, kind of that moral majority crackdown. And you know what we know of as out and about and gay rights today is definitely not what it was in the 80s uh, when a lot of... Um, real activism started to take root, that the work that was done in the 60s and 70s really started to bear fruit. These things take time. Um, and do you think that Morris, towards the end, and you were with him towards the end of his life, do you think that he was proud and pleased with what he achieved during his lifetime? Yes, I do. I, I, I absolutely know it. Um, just just the fact that, that um, there's Pro, uh, gay programming on television now. And when you mentioned RuPaul earlier, Morris would not have been surprised by that. He fully expected things like that to happen. Uh, he fully, you know, he wanted to see transgenders on national television, which is where, which is where you know, people belong who have talent. Well, he, he never stopped working. I spoke with him the day before he passed away and he was still working. He was making phone calls. He was um, he was trying to get people to support. There was some initiative coming up that he wanted people to support. He never stopped. So I don't think he would have stopped now if, if he was one of those people that could live forever. He, he, wouldn't have, he would never have stopped because there's always going to be that extra inch you have to push for. And his was the personality that would push for that extra inch. I think he would be very pleased with um, definitely that there's open gay people serving. There's an open um, gay man just, just ran for president. Did we ever guess that could happen? Morris Kite certainly expected that that could happen someday. Um, so, yes, I think he was he was pleased to see the great progress that was being made, that was continuing to be made. He, he knew it wasn't over because gay marriage hadn't passed yet, and he knew that there was still a road to go. And he never stopped. And he also knew that he had a lot of good leaders that he was leaving behind him. He had a lot of mentees that really learned from him and they I, paid attention. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important point that um, I, I don't see as much in activist communities today, that idea of the legacy of mentorship and torch passing. Um, what are some of the issues that the you know sons of Morris Kite are working on today. <laughs> um, that's you know, in the early seventies, even up, up through the late seventies, any um, news programs or any programs where gay people were mentioned or were were figured, they were always very negative. And so he he monitored television shows and news broadcasts, and he would be the person writing letters and making the phone calls. So in terms of what's happening today with the online social media, we have all those uh, petitions and those phone drives that we can do very easily. He'd be on that, like a, uh, he'd, he'd be all over that. Yeah. 
things like that. And then there was um, just not just AIDS, but there's other health care concerns that the gay community may have in a, in a um, higher degree. And also just rights, just, you know, being able to um, get a job. If you're openly gay, if you're obviously gay, now you don't have to worry about going in and applying for a job. Whereas in the 60s and in the 70s, they were still using this 0.33 code on the job applications, which indicated that this was an openly gay person. We never figured out what it really meant. Maybe it was a third of the population they were referring to. We don't know. But that doesn't happen anymore. And the best part of all of this is that there are homosexuals in hiring places. They're hiring people, which that changes the, the, the access in and of itself. Absolutely. When you have people who have been discriminated against or marginalized as like the quote unquote gatekeepers, it sure changes the dynamic of everything. Mm hmm. And so moving forward, are you working on any other projects? I know you've spent a long time working on this biography of Morris Kite. I did. It grew. Um, when I first, I, 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 I thought it, it, it I, I didn't know it was going to take as long as it did, but that's because I didn't know what was going to come out of the research that I did. I went to Texas three times to interview his former wife. And I met both of his daughters. This was Morris's secret life in New Mexico. And his wife was, was more than willing and happy to tell the story, except that she had had a stroke shortly before my first visit. Now, she was fortunately, mentally, she was there. But physically, her, her speech was still very labored. So it involved having to go back and give her time in between those visits. And then the research just uncovered, it just grew. And I realized this was a bigger story. And I wanted to take my time. I wanted to do, tell this right. If you're telling someone else's life story, you should have the respect to do it right. And even, you know, and this is, as you know, it's a warts and all uh, book. So it, it should be done with the right grace. I, I wanted to put that in. Uh, my next project will probably be something a little bit more personal, perhaps. I'm, I'm dabbling around with a few things. I'm, I'm playing around with some friends about some ideas, but I can't say right now exactly what, what it's going to be. Well, it, I believe, I'm a firm believer in that as well. You can't jinx it. Um, whatever your next project is, uh, I look forward to seeing it because what you've achieved with the Morris Kite biography is extraordinary. As you just said, it is warts and all. It is not a hagiography. And I think it's a better story for it because we get to meet the real person here. And in his humanity, we actually, I think, discover the small greatness, the greatness of the kind acts and the small acts and his, his wonderful sense of largesse to the community. He really, in my reading of, of his story, that Morris really felt that he w was belonged to something much bigger than just his own personal blood family or even his just community in Los Angeles. I think that my reading of it was that he looked at his work as being um, really part of the, the timelessness of advancing all civil rights. And I hope I hope you agree with that interpretation. If not, well, yes, uh, I do. That, that, no, 
Yeah, no, that's a great assessment, Christina. You really, you, you did put your finger on it. It was, as, as gay rights advances and it, and it does uh, evolve, as we see, it's going to overlap into other areas. It's going to come into family rights. You know, now we have um, uh, gay uh, heads of households who are gay and they're raising children and they're, wor- and they're con- just as concerned about the condition of schools as anyone. And so I think it, it makes the world a better place, in my opinion. It, it's just, it's, it's the way it should be. And I think we're better, we're better for it. And yes, Morris, uh, he loved his place in the gay community. He loved being the, uh, the patriarch, if you will. And um, so it's, it's, it's a fitting place for him because as, as someone said, he, he was mortal, but we have to keep him alive for some, for, for our, for the own sake, for the sake of the future generations. Um, and we agree. And which is why we are proud, very proud to publish, uh, your book on the biography of Morris Kite. Now there may be some listeners thinking Feral House is publishing, Feral House Process is publishing a biography of a gay rights leader from Los Angeles. Um, and I want to remind listeners that, yes, yes, we are. Uh, Feral House is was founded in Los Angeles. Uh, Adam and Jessica Parfrey both grew up in Los Angeles. And many of our books have ties to Los Angeles history, whether it's Lexicon Devil, the uh, story of Darby Crash and the Germs to Violence Girl, the fantastic uh, memoir by Alice Bagg. We have lots of Los Angeles stories. We felt this particular Los Angeles story was one that had not been told before, which is, of course, that place where we like to bring you stories you may not have heard before from people who have done amazing and interesting work and have led complicated lives. And Morris Kite sure fits that bill. Uh, Marianne, is there anything else you'd like to uh, folks to know about your work or Morris's life? Well, I think I'm, I'm very grateful that, that Feral House picked this up and, they, and you recognize the value of Morris's story. Um, and yes, you, you mentioned Lexicon Devil, which was uh, co-written by my old friend, Brendan Mullen. And it's, it's um, Los Angeles will continue to be the epicenter of the cultural movement, I think. A lot, a lot happens in New York, but a lot what happens in New York starts in Los Angeles. And it's, it's the, the value of Feral House bringing these stories uh, outside of Los Angeles. It's just so invaluable. I couldn't even give it words right now. And as far as Morris's story goes, I, I hope people understand that this is not just a dull history, a dry history book. There's a lot of funny stories in here. Morris was a was a jokester, and he was a prankster a bit, um, and it, it always served to move the movement forward. So I hope they're in, they're they're in for a fun read. I think so too, and that that's one of the things I didn't want to give too much, um, to, but I think that folks who are fan too of like Fluxus art movements and transgressive art will find something in Morris Kite's story and how he used some of those um, kind of outrageous techniques to build coalitions and bring attention to the civil rights and gay rights movements. Right. That's it. The outrageous techniques. Well put, Christina. (laughs) So I want to thank you, Marianne, so much for talking uh, with us today. And you'll be able to pick up a copy of 
Morris Kite when it is released, and that will be in May of 2020, May of 2020. You look for Marianne to appear at events, especially in Los Angeles at bookstores. You can always check out our website for more information and details and follow us on social media. We'll have all of those updates as well as event invitations. Thank you again for listening. Hey fiends, thanks for listening to the Feral House podcast. We do this about once a month, talking to Feral House and Process Media writers, as well as members of the extended Feral family. You're part of the family. Let us know if you have any questions or if you have an idea of someone we should talk to. You can send me a note at press at feralhouse.com, P-R-E-S-S at feralhouse.com.